The first gunshots came on a Thursday evening around 7 p.m. We hear multiple gunshots. And the first thing I do is uh, I call the watchman. He had not arrived, so the security guard used to come around 6.30. So when I call him, he tells me, but madam, you can hear gunshots. We are not coming today. Then I got scared. I wrote an SMS to my sister and I told her, okay. They finally reached our place. I was just saying, okay, if I were to die, let it be one gunshot. And whether I was pregnant. <laughs> This is a story of a Kenyan lady who was in Juba, South Sudan's capital, at the height of the recent war in July 2016. Fresh clashes had broken out between troops loyal to South Sudan's President Salva Kiir and soldiers supporting the first Vice President, Riek Machar. The youngest country was meant to be celebrating the fifth anniversary of its independence from Sudan, but instead it was facing fears of a return to an all-out civil war and Kenyans who had moved to the new country that held great opportunity were caught up right in the middle. This is a Human Interest Podcast with Evelyn Wamboi, a weekly podcast where we get to hear stories about people, why they do what they do, and about life, successes, losses, challenges, and lessons. Today's story is about a woman who experienced war, fear, despair, and renewed hope, all while hiding under her bed for four days. That day when you sent me that video, and I'm sure you sent a few other people, of the gunshots, and you told me that you were under under a tape of the bed, yeah. you know, hearing all those gunshots. Maybe paint, paint us a picture. The first gunshots came on a Thursday evening around 7 p.m. I'd already closed office and I was in, okay, where I stayed is where, where I stayed is where I worked. I knew what gunshots were, though this is something I learned in Juba. I had never had a gunshot in Kenya. So, um, but this day the problem was the gunshots, it wasn't like a one-off thing, because most times we'd hear maybe a couple fighting or two people fighting or a barrel somewhere, and you hear like two gunshots, three gunshots, and that's it. Or maybe from the barracks, but just one or two. All of a sudden, um, we hear multiple gunshots. And the first thing I do is uh, I call the watchman. He had not arrived, so the security guard used to come around 6.30. So when I call him, he tells me, but madam, you can hear gunshots. We are not coming today. Then I got scared. Friday morning, there was so much tension, and we really didn't know. You know, some people, like, 
okay, there are so many people in Juba who've gone through war. So some people knew it was a war issue, but some people just thought things were going to be normal. What, what was going to happen in the next few days, like, we just didn't know it was just going to get out of, blow out of proportion like that. Around 2.33 now we had the, the gunshots, the real gunshots. That was the war now in the state house. They call it J1. So I tried asking my friends, ones in Kenya, do you know anything is happening in Juba? Nobody knew. So there's this WhatsApp group that we have for Kenyans. Yeah, so uh, I just opened, got onto WhatsApp and then we're like, are you guys hearing gunshots? Yeah, where? It's coming from State House. Then now we got scared. So then I told my neighbor, I went out. It, she's, she was, there's a lady we were living with. She was also Kenyan. So I told her, hey, okay, the, the war is coming in from G1. Then she told me now that is the war in Juba. It went on for between 2.30 to around 4, and I think Juba closed. And I think that was the beginning of all the wars, you see. So Juba closed down and everybody closed shop. Everybody was asked to be indoors. Actually, that was a directive, you know, you have to be indoors, you know, and under the bed. Because even when you go onto social media platforms like the UN and you ask, OK, we're hearing that, what can we do? Then they're like, OK, you people stay indoors and stay under the bed. You know, that's what they, they tell you. So the next few days, uh, we were just stuck in the house, and it was very, very, it was a very tense environment with a lot of lack of information. You see, even I was I had access to TV, so sometimes we'd, uh, we'd put on the generators and uh, watch TV and get to know what's happening through Al Jazeera or maybe the Kenyan uh, or maybe the Kenyan uh, TV stations and also the WhatsApp groups and you know you communicate to people home You're in the house, there's no food. And by the way, I was pregnant. I was five months pregnant. That I was five months pregnant, yeah. <laughs> and we ran out of food. And at some point, I had, uh, we had popcorns. I had popcorns and um, oil. And at least I had sugar. So I, I would take, um, I would take a lot of uh, popcorns and sugar and, and just strong tea. You were practically living in Juba. Why didn't you have food in your house? Okay, by the way, Juba is not a place, to, it's not a place like you buy food and store in the house because one, we don't have 24 hours power. So your, your fridge most likely is not working all that time. So it's on a daily basis job. You wake up, you send somebody to go buy for you food for that day and then you, and then you keep because there's no power, electricity. So I think by the third day, we didn't, actually it's even the second day, nobody had food. On Saturday morning, they opened up the shop. So when we went to the shops, like the me, who thought like, okay, you go to the shop, you buy unga. Ah, everybody was buying juice and biscuits. I'm the only one who wanted to buy these other things. Then, okay, I think a day later, I realized I was in the wrong place, you know, like I knew, I didn't know what I really wanted to buy. So I bought all those, I just bought these other things, 
which I like unga, which I never got to use because there was nothing again to cook with it. You see, so and then we 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 just stayed indoors most of the times the whole day actually anyway the war goes on between during daylight i mean it starts at 8 in the morning and ends at around 6 they don't fight at night yeah and it's gunshot after gunshot you know until you know it reached a point i think we got to know you know we know like there's an m what's called an m7 watch rifle you know there's a uh, ak47 you know when it's an rpg you know, and it's, okay, there are no bombs, but we clearly knew exactly, and then we got to learn how, we got to learn the directions, like, okay, if an RPG falls somewhere, like, from the the, the sound, from where you are, you're able to know. Throughout the period, we spent a lot of time under the beds. You just under the bed on your phone, and most of the times you're talking to people who really are not really going to help you, like people back at home who don't know what to, what's happening there. And in the morning, we'd wake up and okay, between uh, morning around 6:30 and 8:30 to 9 things look okay. And this is the time people leave, go to the road, and see the ones who've been killed. You know. And and around 8.39, when the gunshots really start, then you have to go back home and just go under your bed, under the bed, and spend a lot of time there throughout the day. Actually, they say the only reason you need to be under the bed is just so that bullets, stray bullets do not get to hit you. How many days would you say you were locked in your, in your, in your home? Four days, yeah, it was four days which seemed like eternity. And Sunday was that Sunday was the worst because uh, I think the gunshots were so close and so near. At some point, they even uh, a gunshot went uh, just so near our gate, and it was so loud. We thought, I think we thought, and and I think that's that's the time I wrote I wrote an SMS to my sister, and I told her, okay, they finally reached our place. I'd been there for like six years. I realized I get Arabic, though I can't speak. Because somebody, the, 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 this SPLA drove past by using some Land Rover and they were making some announcement. The announcement was, what was over? And the next day, we were supposed to go to the market in the morning to buy food. And they were actually telling us, you have to go and buy food, because they clearly knew some people would... would uh, some people would die because of hunger. So it was actually another directive. Just a Land Rover with guns facing everywhere, and they're driving on the road, you know. And you see, you've been to Jubaya, so you know the face. <laughs> yes, I know the face. Dark, really shiny or sweaty from the country's extreme heat. Deep-set, bloodshot eyes that looked straight at you, jolted you, sparked a fear from deep within. A young, lean face that, if you look close enough, has hints of innocence, but which is covered in wrinkly trace lines that weigh heavy, carrying their life journey.
So the next day we wake up and we go to the to the market and I think that was my worst day because when we left, where we lived was smelling death. Um, just after we left, the, when we got into the main road, there were still people who had died and on the sides of the road. Um, and you could see maybe the belts are not, I don't know if they're selling the belts, but that's on the side of the road. And then there was a market, I think the ma they must have fought in the market, and then so many people died. So it was really smelling death, you know. And <clears throat> like a mug, actually the whole area, you know, like the, if you, if you're here today, like we're here now, but this whole place is smelling like a mug, you know. We drove to the market. And I think that's when I real that's, that's when I realized what I've been through. Cause for some reasons the first the first army uniform I saw, I could not take it. I just started crying, you know. And I I got sort of scared. Okay. I never saw any any army guy shoot anybody. I never. But I had gunshots. And I think my mind painted that picture that they are the ones who are shooting people this year, and they're the ones who are causing all this mayhem the, those, that whole period. I could not stand seeing them. And that's, that's, I've, really, I've carried that back home until today. I really have a problem with the army uniform until today. Even when I see it, I think I just get goosebumps. It reminds me of the gunshots, you see. You know I'm, not, I'm somebody who is very friendly with noise, but I think after that episode, in Juba, um, I rarely, even as Sufuria being hit in the kitchen, really offends me so, so much, it spoils my whole evening. You know, I cannot stand noise anymore, you know, because all it reminds me are those gunshots. So I went into the market, and at some point, the lady I was with, the one who we'd gone to buy food with, left me to, okay, because I was crying most of the time, I, I'm the one, I was just crying, and... She had been in Juba longer, and she's actually also much older. So she was just, she was sort of like trying to take care of me as well. So for just a micro-minute, she left me standing there somewhere, and then she went into a butcher, which I, I clearly could see. She just told me, I'm going to that butcher to buy meat. And then so I stood somewhere. And I don't know what made me turn, and I saw an army guy near me. He was actually a very young guy. He looked like he was in his teens, or if at most he could have been 21. And then, you know, the way that thing was very thin. Then I saw him. Then he looked so dirty, and he looked like his clothes, he'd been wearing his clothes for some days. And I screamed. I was in that market, and I really screamed. And, and then another woman, um, she, she must be Ugandan or something, she just came and hugged me and told me I needed to just go back home, that this happens all the time. And... I need to go back home. I'll feel better. So when I checked the lady, we were with, I couldn't, I don't know, I couldn't, when I checked the other side, I think I, I, I think I just got confused and I couldn't see clearly where she'd gone. And me losing her, me losing her just made me look so mad in that market because now I just started screaming, you know, and I was running away. And then I think she noticed there was a commotion where I was and she came. So when I saw her again, at least I calmed down and then we went back home. So by then the airport was not yet open and no flights were leaving. So I think the next day is when the flights were leaving. So luckily we had money in the house. So when the flights uh, opened up for, the airspace opened up for flights to land in Juba, 
I think we were among the first person. I was among the first people to leave Juba on commercial flights because we came. Okay, by then they never used to. They never said they would say a charter flight because now the price was hiked. So I had money and uh, I just paid for the flight and came back home. Coming back home, I never thought I needed a therap uh, like a therapist or something or I, like somebody to help me go through it. I trusted on my on my inner strength to really go through this because I look at it and. For some reasons, I think I was still at the right place at the right time. It took me a whole month inside the house, in my house here in Nairobi, and I never, okay, I didn't think people, okay, talking to people, maybe people like you and maybe my family and my friends um, got me out of it, you see. I would just explain to them what happened. But I think the effect would remain with me much, much longer, yeah. I mean, until today, even the Kenyan army, I have a friend who is in the army, by the way, and I always tell him I would never want to see you in the uniform, you know, like, because I cannot stand that uniform, even here in Kenya. I pass by DOD a lot, that, but finally, you know, in Kenya, you don't see them a lot with uniforms, yeah. But it's it's really... It's really a part of my life that's very dark. Take me back to those four days when you're in, locked up in your house mm. in Juba. What exactly were your thoughts, you know, under that bed? Mm. What were, exactly were you thinking about? I was just saying, okay, if I were to die, let it be one gunshot. <laughs> I'm, I'm pregnant, I'm in a foreign country, there's war. I have my baby who I want to see. I learned to tell myself that I was in the right place at the right time. I, it was quite a very tough situation for me. And for, for, okay, because being in Juba also was just my own personal choice. Nobody took me to Juba, I took myself to Juba, you see. So um, I, I would try and like sort of, I don't know if I was consoling myself, but I would tell myself I was in the right place at the right time. And whatever would ha I think I was, it was everything was happening as it should be. I was supposed to be there when pregnant, and the war was just going to happen during that time. Though, uh, the, okay, also just carrying a pregnancy in that humidity is not easy. So it was a very difficult time for me as well. I really didn't think I wanted to go back to Juba. But I found myself going back again. Seven months pregnant, I was back, yeah. <laughs> Why? Why were you going back, you know, with the fear that this could happen again? You know, there was no clarity about whether the war had really ended. Okay, um, it's not a bad place. And I think for the... I started going to Juba in 2011. So 2011 until now, seven years. I think they've only been two occasions where they've had such a very uh, such a huge crisis 2013 December and 2016 July and me going back I I had so many unsolved issues we had projects that were pending that had to be done and I had to be there on the ground and also I trusted in things working out again you know things just working out again because anyway it's a struggle for them as well 
just as it is a struggle for us as Kenyans to be there, but it's also a struggle for them. They really want that peace, but it's not for, it wasn't forthcoming. It's not yet even come. But, uh, and, and I've also grown to be part of them. You know, for me, it's more of, for me, it's like a second home. And sometimes I say it's my second home. So I really didn't mind going back. Clearly knowing that anyway, whatever would happen, somehow we just maneuver through. We've always done that. You know, we in Juba, this happens and you just maneuver through and you come back home. Yeah. I remember when I interviewed First Vice President Riek Machar back in December 2010. It's my pleasure to be joined by the Vice President of South It was Sudan, just days Dr. before the referendum scheduled for the 9th of January 2011, where a decision was to be made on whether or not South Sudan should break away. There were such high hopes then. Let's talk uh, post-referendum. What, what are your immediate plans and uh, do you hope for an election? I think our priorities would remain as they were, ensuring that there is security, which, is, which has been our first priority since government of Southern Sudan was established. Uh, second, the, the, the basic infrastructure, which we so much lack, is improved. So their expectation would be they'll have better schools, better uh, hospitals, clinics, uh, more development projects being implemented. 98% of people had voted for independence from Sudan when the results were announced later on the 30th of January 2011. 98% of people who had pegged their hopes on the first vice president's plans after secession. Years on, and a lot of such hopes are yet to be realized. But the latest ceasefire agreed to and signed by President Salva Kiir and first Vice President Riek Machar in June 2018 may just be what the country needs. Renewed hope that peace may finally be reached to end the country's four and a half year civil war. And maybe this could be their 12th peace deal they're making. And it's okay. You see, they're a young country. And I think if you, if you go back to maybe, if you look at other countries, like even, or even if you look at the Western world, look at Germany, you know, they had this, how do you call it? They had the Hitler, when Hitler was there, you see, just imagine all the things that happened there. How many years were those, you see? I think South Sudan is still the baby that just needs to to be to be left no to to be to be helped to crawl mm. in as much as maybe they would not reach a point where total peace like what we have here just goes back there but even if it is plastic so long as it works you know so long as it works like okay the guns are silent things are happening i think we we would all be on the right we would all be in the right direction so sudan is a it's still a place for so, so many opportunities. There's so many gaps in the human resource uh, and, and, and with very, very minimal human resource. And that's why people like me, okay, we've, we've grown to like it, maybe because you get to learn a lot, you know, and, and, and you get to, you, you're involved in so, so much that maybe you wouldn't have done if you're back here at home here. Yeah. Would you, what's your 
business situation like now? And have you closed shop? Are you just waiting until things clear up and you go back? What's happening? No, uh, for I think from 2016, just after the crisis, things really went down. Apart from the war, there was the issue about the world oil pricing. So, you know, they really rely on a single export, which is oil. And I think it amounts to like over 90% of their revenue. So uh, when the world oil pricing went down, it also affected the economy. So the economy has really been going down. So things have really been going down. So in July, I think November, what we did is we just downscaled and left uh, just a shell of uh, employees there, just locals. So most of the things we're doing from Nairobi, that's why we're here now. And um, and uh, it's not yet picked up from that time. Because, okay, in the private sector is a bit different, yeah. So it's, it's not yet picked up, yeah. But uh, we are very hopeful. There's just something about Juba. With time, you get to love Juba. One is when you're in Juba, you, you, you've gone to work. So you find you're working most of the time. I mean, I think the days I would leave my desk at 10.30 or 11, and at 6 again I'm on my desk. And actually, it incre- your productivity is, is at an all-time high. So you're very productive. Not like here, you know, in the evenings, let's go and have coffee. We can weddings, you know, and stuff. But in Juba, when you're there, you came to work, and you find yourself working a lot of times. So if you're a workaholic or you're somebody really, who is really interested in what they are doing, you really get to fall in love with what you're doing. And sooner or later, all you're doing with your life is just working, working. Of which... It's advantageous because in the long run, you, okay, maybe it also, wait, okay, it's like energy in, energy, and what you get in is also commensurate with the time you put in. So, and then it's not a place that, uh, <coughs> apart from the, I, my biggest problem is just humidity, yeah. But uh, apart from that, the, the you know, you, you it's it's never a place where you, you face a lot of challenges, especially if you're, that's just somebody who really, um, spends most of their time working, yeah. So I just got to, uh, to, to like staying in Juba. And at some point, I really even came back home. It's, it's, especially when I didn't need to come, I just didn't come. You know, I only came when I needed to come. And deep in my mind, I used to say, I think I've relocated. I, and, and even right now, I still think I should, um, I'll be happier there, you know. <laughs> but you see, with their, with their situation, it, it's really not... It's it's really not uh, some real. It's not like a, it can be a reality, you know. If, if everything would be constant and and the war would, the peace treaty would hold and you know the place would pick up, is it a place you'd consider going back, you know, and picking up from where you left off? Yeah, I would. But I also think it's a matter of time before they also get to before they they also get to fill in jump into our shoes, especially you know, they, they have such a, a huge number of foreigners, and with time they've been learning. Initially in Juba um, you'd find even the basic things, like even house girls would come all the way from Uganda and Kenya, and then you'll find even people like saloons, the, the, the barbers, you know, you know, things, those basic things were being done by foreigners. But right now, also, they've grown and I think with time, they may also need, they will not need that huge number of uh, foreigners in South Sudan. Uh, so 
yes, in as much as I really want, I would want, I'm going back there. I still do a lot of things there. I want to be there. But then I clearly know it's not somewhere I want to stay, maybe in another five, ten years. Eventually, I really want to come back home, especially because of the weather. Yeah, yeah, the weather is just out of this world, yeah. I ask her about her daughter. Yes, she got a daughter who's almost two now. My daughter is as stubborn as I am, she says. Here she is, playing and running around, stepping on grass and soil and laughing, just like it's meant to be. You've been listening to the Human Interest Podcast with Evelyn Womboy. I'm available on SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher. So please head over there and enjoy. You can also review the podcast on these apps and help others find and also enjoy this podcast. <laughs>